I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Michelle Scharf. And I'm Jenny Taylor. And Michelle, today I'm going to introduce everyone to a new friend of mine that I met at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. as part of some of the Army meetings that I had with some Army senior leaders and a group full of Army survivors. So we've got Master Sergeant Aaron Hudgens on the line. Hi, Aaron. Hey, how's it going? Hey, we're so glad to have you here. Thank you for taking time to call in from Oklahoma and tell us a little yes. bit about your military story. As as I said, you're a Master Sergeant in the uh, United States Army, Oklahoma National Guard. But also, we're here today to talk about your beautiful wife, Jerry Jean Hudgens. I love that you call her JJ. I think that's so sweet. So I don't want to take a ton of time. I want you to kind of jump in and tell us about you, your Army story, JJ, her Army story, and then, of course, where the two stories came together. So I've been in the Army for roughly 25 years, 20 federal service, and then five additional reserve time because everyone starts out in the Guard as a reservist. And then if you happen to just get a job being AGR, you get it, and then you move forward from there. So I just hit 20 years in October. I can retire anytime I want, but uh, I've decided to stay in for now pending this new assignment because I have access to soldiers and assets that I would not have if I was to get out. So this has actually kind of propelled my career to continue on when I would have gotten out a long time ago. And just really quickly, the new assignment you're talking about is the SOG, right, Aaron? You okay if I explain that a little bit? So we call it the SOG. It's S-A-W-G. And it's a survivor advisory working group under the direction of the chief of staff of the Army. So this is the four-star general, McConville, who is over all Army of all Army in the world, has set up a working group where they bring in survivors for three or four years at a time from different parts of the world, different backgrounds, all Army that have lost someone in uniform. Now, Aaron happens to be Army himself, and so is his late wife, so... Aaron is new to the SOG. I've been on it a couple of years, but this is the first time we've all met in person because, of course, of COVID. So, Aaron, I appreciate that you would delay your retirement in order to better serve not only the Army, but the survivor community within the Army. So I just wanted to kind of interject a little backstory there. And then keep keep going. Tell us about you and tell us about JJ. I I joined. I I was like everyone else. I just wanted to do the, the six years and get out. I didn't think I would ever do anything more than that. But I ended up, I'm deployed twice. So... Every deployment just kind of re-energized the, the want to keep doing this, and so I just kept moving forward. Well, fast forward to roughly about five years ago, I got promoted to E8. I work in the HR department in the uh, military. So I got promoted to E8, and I was assigned to the infantry brigade in the state of Oklahoma as the S1, so I oversee personnel. When okay, I showed for, up there, for us to, civilians, um, tell us what EA and yeah. S1 mean. <laughs> oh, so I'm sorry. Uh, EA is just a master sergeant. I am okay. a. It's enlisted yeah, so soldier I, level eight. 
E hyphen eight. E eight. Okay. Okay. So the yes. rank is master sorry, sergeant. I, You're yes, okay. No, it's okay. It's just us civilians. We just don't get <laughs> it. Oh, I don't get it, and I'm still been in. So anyway. <laughs> but in the civilian world, we would call the S one HR personnel yeah, matters, right? Be, yes, I would be an HR at a standard business or corporation. I would work over personnel and. Anything that oversees that, that's exactly what I would do. And your business for this example is the Oklahoma National Guard? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay, And great. so I uh, started there, and once I got promoted to uh, Master Sergeant, my first assignment was with IBCT, which is a infantry brigade, as well, basically combat team is what the IBC stands for. And once I got to that station, that's when I was introduced to my future wife, which was at the time, was Sergeant Murphy, and right out of the shoot, she was a gunslinger and an absolute. I have not seen very many soldiers at the rank of her, which she was just a sergeant, which is an E5, lower ranking, but just starting out. And she had no filter. She had no problem telling you if she didn't agree with that. She had no problem explaining that the soldiers that were assigned to her were her soldiers, not yours. And I really took to that because a lot of leaders don't take ownership the way she took ownership. And she took ownership as if once they became under her fold, those were hers. And she took care of them probably any better than I've ever seen anybody in the military take care of a soldier. She I love could tell that. you everything about them. She could tell you their personal life. She could tell the names of their children. She could tell you their birth dates from memory. Wow. And yeah, and that's something that I've never seen. Most people will have to look into their personnel records and everything to find that, not her. She knew everything about them. And that really played a part because throughout the, the months when we worked together, her, those soldiers reported to her, and to this day, they still um, go visit her gravesite. They still talk to me, and we share pictures. And one of her soldiers just had a child, a little baby girl, and she named her after her. Oh, my oh, goodness. Sweet. That's the true connection. So, I mean, think of that compassionate leadership which sometimes might not be what the stereotype of Army leadership brings to mind. Correct. I love that. All right, how long did you date? What's it like to date when there's a rank difference, but you're both in the Army there kind of in proximity? I imagine that has its own nuances. It absolutely does. I just happened, as soon as I got there, I took a, an assignment as a first sergeant in an infantry unit. So it's, it's hard to explain, but I, basically it's a lateral assignment, which allowed us to be able to see each other. Because um, we were in the actual same unit, we were in the same section, and when we first met, it was all business. I, okay. Yeah, nothing was out of the ordinary. She reported to me just like a normal sergeant would report to a senior. That was the extent of it. Now, uh, probably about a year into it, and then I'd already moved to another assignment when we started to actually engage in, and have a, an opportunity to actually have a relationship. And okay. that's, when, that's when she introduced me to her daughter's. She had two daughters, uh, Shoni Murphy and Seneca Murphy, and they were just like her, very headstrong, Spitfire. very <laughs> much, very much so. And uh, um, anytime something would go wrong, she would absolutely call me directly and let me know. She did not agree with that or that policy, and uh, she uh, had no problem with the rank difference at all. Matter of fact, it, it almost played no bearing in our relationship only at work or when uh, there was a, a work question or a situation, she would ask for my advice or mentorship. But other okay. than that, she, she was You were able to be individual. on equal ground. Absolutely. I and love that's that. something that's very, it's very difficult to do that in the military because yeah. you're so used to being separated. There is a difference and there is a, 
you know, certain ranks do not mix with other certain ranks. Sure. So, and that, that's a very normal. So, All right, yeah, she so she's, she's in the Army, you're huh? in the Army, she's got the two yep. daughters. Do you have any children from any previous relationships? I, I do. I have three sons. One just graduated on Friday. Oh, congratulations. So, thank you. It was a blast. It was bittersweet yeah. uh, to see him go across the stage. So I was uh, very much a very proud father. So a bit of a Brady, but, uh, a bit of a Brady bunch here. We did. So we we, we introduced the children by going on a. Um, we went down to Lawton and had a uh, hot, like a nature hike, and just kind of um, climbed Mount Scott and just did a little little hiking trip. And we wanted to kind of see how the kids would mix because you know, and because you have teenagers and those are kind of hit and miss. Oh yeah. So, but and they melted and melted. Almost immediately. Oh, that's and this great! Was something I have, I've never seen before. It was it was actually really uh, reassuring because kids can make and break a relationship oh, when, you, when, sure. you're, when you're blended. Absolutely. So it went off really well, and we just kind of played it off as, "Oh no, we're just friends." And the two girls, in about five minutes, were like, "No, you're not." No, <laughs> we're, we're Those not are sharp girls. Yes, they are. So we went ahead and said, "Yes, we have been seeing each other," and so then they were like, "Oh, okay." So from then on, we just moved forward, and we started going back and forth between each other's houses for a while before we finally said, you know what, let's just, we're going to get a house together, because it didn't take us very long before we just felt that this is right. This is where yeah. we should be. This is who we should be with. We had every aspect of our life we had already revealed to each other, you know, for anything, any skeletons in the closet, we sure. knew each other's darkest, deepest secrets, and neither one of us ran. So that was always a plus. That's always a good sign. <laughs> yes. So we went ahead and uh, we married. Uh, we when did together. you get married, Aaron? What, what month okay, and year? So we have two wedding dates. Her idea was I want to marry you in your hometown and you can marry me in my hometown. Oh, so we that's had, sweet. So we went to Arizona and married just before the sun went down. As the sun was setting, we married in my hometown, Mesa, Arizona, and then we drove back the very next morning. And what, where, was her ho- where was her hometown? Her hometown is Norman, Oklahoma. Okay. So as soon as we got home, we set it up in Norman and brought the friends and family in, and we got married in our living room of our house. I love that. When was that calendar-wise, like timeline? Uh, January 12, 2018, we are officially married. Okay. We're going to Go take ahead. a break if we can for a second. Um, after yeah. we've gotten this great introduction and this love story that... Sounds like even the kids agree this is a good match. You can make the rank work. You can make children work. You can make the blend work. Like, that's a lot. And you guys are doing great with it. We're going to take a break and come back and find out what happens as uh, the year 2018 progresses. We'll be right back. Absolutely. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.
All right, Aaron, tell us what happens. You're newlyweds. You've got these five kids between you. You're getting a home together and starting this new life kind of officially together. You're mm-hmm. both still in the Army. So can you walk us through what happens with your service and JJ's? Okay. Well, with my service, I've taken a first starting position. So it's in another unit, another building altogether. My wife gets a selection to be promoted. So she is now going to make staff sergeant in the Army. And so she takes her promotion and goes to another unit in Lawton, Oklahoma. And about that time, she was on active duty orders, but they were temporary orders. They're just short-term orders that they will bring guardsmen on to do to handle a job or a task, and then they will take them off. And they do it all the time. So it's not unusual. So her orders ended, and about that time, they had reached out to her and asked her if she would like to help the unit that was deploying to Afghanistan, uh, helping in uh, doing HR work for them because she's really good at it. And so she agrees because she wanted to stay home. She didn't want to deploy, and they had told her, yes, you will stay in the rear with the soldiers that couldn't deploy, and you will take care of them and make sure they're administrators as they get out of the Army and move forward until the unit comes back from Afghanistan. Well, about a week later, she gets the call that one of the soldiers are um, needing to drop out of the deployment due to legal and a custody battle that seems to be getting out of hand. So they ask her if she will deploy, and this will be her third deployment. She has already deployed to Iraq for 18 months with the 82nd Airborne because she spent her first four years as active duty. Then she crossed over to the Guard and deployed with the Guard for Afghanistan for 12. So she's already got two under her belt, just like I do, and they ask her for a third. Now, she doesn't want to go. She fights it for at least two to three days, but her conscience really ate at her because this is why you join. You join the military that, you know, there is a chance, you know, you're going to deploy. And the, the soldier side of her ended up overpowering the other civilian or mother side of her. She just felt that if the Army's asking, I'll do this one last time. I will do it just one more time. And at that point, she had said that if I go, I'm done. I would like to get out of the Army, and you and I, let's go start something new. Because she knew I was close to retirement. She said, you know what, I will just kind of – tread water until you retire and then we will go see the world or we'll go sell real estate or let's go finish our degrees at OU. She, she came up with a lot of ideas and I said, that sounds like a good idea. So we agreed that she would go ahead and deploy one last time. And what happened was about a month into it, when she was broke this? her hip. You know, she came home for just a brief moment to get married and then she deployed. Okay. So what year was that? Early 2018. Uh, okay. Early yeah, 2018. So it's, yeah, so it's, oh, right. The unit starts mobilizing in October. So from January to October is, is basically the only window her and I really had. And I'm ready for it because I've been deployed, so I understand how it all works. I know the dynamic. I take her kids on. I'm like, nope, they're mine now. So I have five. And she focuses on taking care of the soldiers in the unit. And about a month into it, she injures herself at Fort Bliss and breaks her hip. So when she breaks her hip, they immediately uh, emergency surgery to try to repair they had found two cysts that had caused the uh, break, and she starts recovering down at Fort Bliss for a little bit before they move her down to the WTU, which is a Wounded Warriors transitional where they pretty much do all the rest of the care for you until you're ready to go home. And that is down at two places. There's one at Fort Riley, and there's one at Fort Hood, Texas. Well, they sent her down to Fort Hood, Texas, and that's where she's there for the remainder of the time until around April. They give her the diagnosis that... Even though she's pretty much healed and she's 
okay, she will never walk the same way again. And wow. she will have a, a little bit of a limp, and her military career is now going to come to an end. They were starting the process, and everything was in the mix to uh, medically discharge her, and that's when things started to spiral. She wanted to go out on her terms. I think there was a, a little sense of pride in the fact that she was a really good athlete in high school. Now that she can't even run, she couldn't lift weights. So she was having a very hard time accepting the fact that she couldn't do a lot of things that she could have. And she had this really bad limp that subconsciously really did a number for her. So when she did finally come home, it was rough. She was in a wheelchair and progressed into crutches. And then finally she was independent. But that was the defining moment where I wasn't necessarily seeing the signs. I was just seeing that she was starting to look inward more and, and say things that that she normally would not say. She started feeling sorry for herself, which she had never done before. She was always very prideful. She was very, nope, I can do this. I'm very independent. She was extremely strong-willed, and she was starting to see. It felt almost as if she was going to have to be dependent on somebody to help her. And I think that's where it started to slowly spiral. And it was slow because she didn't give any of the signs that, that I've been trained or her and I both have been through the Army's um, program, which is called ACE. It's a program designed for us to look for the symptoms, look for the characteristics of someone that is starting to uh, be suicidal. So she knew everything that we would look for. And she knew that I would be looking for the same things. So she started to hide all her mannerisms and what she would say and how she would say it. And she was purposely trying to paint a picture that she was totally okay, but she was absolutely in a lot of pain internally. Just knowing that here in a few couple of weeks or a month or two, her career would be completely over. And now she would be faced with what does she really have to do? Like not having that fallback is sometimes very difficult to accept. Yeah. Did she talk to you at all about feeling that loss of like, what am I supposed to do now? And, you know, I think for no. someone like me, I'm a civilian, so I appreciate the service of those that are willing to serve. But like, mm -hmm. you know, I in my mind, a medical discharge is an honorable discharge. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It you, is. You can't forfeit. You know, I mean, your body can only take so much and no. her breaking her hip wasn't her fault. And there's obviously some other medical things going on with that. So like. Try to, like, explain to me that side of, like, was she talking to you at all about, like, what am I supposed to do now? And I, I didn't want to leave this way. I wanted to leave when I was ready. Yeah. Well, she said that on a few occasions. Like, she wanted to leave on her terms. And even though we had discussed, hey, you know, when she gets back from this deployment, she was going to go ahead and get on out. Sometimes you say things at the moment. And then later on in life, you go, no, I think I'm going to stay in and do some more. Because, right. you know, I, I told – after the death of my wife, I told everybody I was done. I, I told, like, my leadership. I told the general, when my time is up, I'm, I'm going to take my papers and I'm going to move on about my life. And everyone was fully prepared and expected me to retire like I said I was going to. And then I didn't. Right. So I and, feel that's exactly what she was doing. Yeah. You know, and those transitional parts of our life, I get that, you know. 
we sometimes think that we're going to go one way and then we're like, well, actually, I think I'm going to go this other way. So, yeah, that's interesting. So tell us about what happened. Okay. So um, they had put her on quite a bit of medication uh, for for the bone graft and everything to take. And so she had started seeing a counselor and they had – when she came back from Fort Hood, she had a box of medication, and I, I cannot tell you what it was. I couldn't – some of the names on it, I would have to, like, Google because they didn't even sound like they were medications. But she had just literally a small box of just pool bottles, and I, I don't know which one she took when she took them and how she took them. I just know that she had them, and she had them in a spot, and she would – I'd just see her crack up in a couple, and she would take them when she was – she said she was supposed to, and – I believed her, and I didn't think anything about it. The night um, of her death, we had um, went out to the Norman Music Festival because her brother is a musician. He was performing, so we had went out there to see him perform. And uh, I had not seen her take any of her medication. Uh, anytime she would drink alcohol, I never saw her take her meds. So that night started out like any other night, and we had a few adult beverages, uh, nothing at excess that I can recall even to this day. And trust me, I have, I've beaten myself up for two years trying to replay that night and every single moment over and over. And where did I miss it? And she, um, when we got home, this is where the things start um, going south is I go straight to bed. I'm tired. It is, it is late. I can't remember if it's between 11 or 12. It's, it's late. And she stays up. She has one of her friends from high school that she's with. They're in there just uh, doing the girl thing and laughing and joking. And I just tell her, I'm going to bed. I'm tired. And she's like, I'll see you after a while. And so when I go to sleep, uh, like I said, I wasn't paying attention to the time or anything. She wakes me up and she's just messing with me. And when, you know, when you were sober and then the person you're with is not sober, they tend to be um, more playful and full of things they want to talk about at, you know, late night and, just being who she is, and that's not anything normal, and she just keeps bothering me. Now, I'm not someone you want to wake up. If you wake me up, the house better be on fire, or there better be a kid that has, like, severed off a limb or something. It has to be pretty, pretty big deal for, for you to wake me up. So when she wakes me up and all she does is just messing with me, I get irritated. And that's when I say – I get up and I say, I'm, I'm going to go sleep in the other room because I can't handle this. I can't be in a bed with someone that's – that's drunk or, or is just, you know, and so she, she gets a little hostile, but I just turn around and say, I'll see you in the morning. And she was like, thanks for being a jerk. And I was like, you're welcome. And I close the door behind me. And the next morning when I wake up, so the kids are all home. We have three of the five kids actually physically home. Two of them are with their friends spending the night. I get up and I make breakfast. It's a normal Sunday morning, nothing out of the ordinary. I, now I haven't been back into the bedroom. I figured since she had alcohol, she probably needs to sleep it off. I was perfectly fine, so I, I cooked the kids breakfast. We share some pictures from the night before uh, between her older, Shoni. She's sharing some pictures that she took with her camera. And then about that time, I decided, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in there and check on her, make sure she's okay and if she needs anything. And I've got breakfast ready, so I go to open the door. It's locked, which is very unusual, but... Um, it just forces me to go down and get a butter knife from the kitchen so I can unlock the door from the outside because she wouldn't answer. I knocked on a no answer, no response. So when I open the door, nothing's out of the ordinary. The bed's, it's not made. You can tell she slept in it. 
Uh, I call her name out, no response. So when I come around the bed, um, on the other side, there is a door that goes right into the bathroom and then into the closet. At that moment, when I can see through the bathroom and into the closet is when I stop. And there is a delay in my reaction of what I'm seeing because I'm not sure what I'm looking at because it's not registering. In my mind, everything goes quiet. It almost is like no sound, no air, nothing. It is just quiet. And it's me staring across through the bathroom into the closet as my wife is now hanging inside the closet. Oh, Aaron. And it, it like I said, it, it takes me a minute to realize, what am I looking at? Because it doesn't look natural. And then all of a sudden, it goes from no sound, no anything to NASCAR. Everything is, my adrenaline's pumping, my, I, like I can hear sounds, and, and I mean, and I, it's a sprint straight through the bathroom, straight into the closet. That's when I could tell. And it was, I, I knew right then it was, there was nothing, there was nothing. I, I couldn't, it was, she there was, was nothing gone. I could do. Yeah. yeah, she was gone. Oh my gosh, Erin, I am so sorry. This is horrific. It's unimaginable. It was. And And, and all the kids are home and you're all in the same house. You know, oftentimes when we invite military members to tell their story of losing a soldier or another branch of service, it involves combat and a knock on the door and the notification team comes over. In this situation, you're now the one to notify the children and... Everyone, including yes. yourself, having to register what you saw. Can you walk us through that I, a bit? So um, I immediately make a straight beeline to to the door and the, um, to our bedroom. As soon as I come out, I slam the door behind me so that no one else can see what I saw. And unfortunately, my cell phone is completely dead. So I have no cell phone. So I scream to one of the, the kids, which is Shoni is the oldest. I need her cell phone. And at first, you know, a teenager will not just hand over her cell phone. Right. So she, she immediately is like, why are you wanting my cell phone? And I immediately elevate my voice to a completely different level that she has never heard before. And it scares her. And when I do that, I, I go, scratch that, call 911. And then when I said that, she immediately her entire expression had changed. Then she knew I was serious and this wasn't something like I was not mad in in the sense that they've done something wrong. And so that's when she ran to me and handed me the phone. And that's when we called 911. Now, I don't know. I have been trained to handle a number of different scenarios, but what I was not trained for is to handle, you know, a loved one and like, what do or who do I call? And so when the 911 dispatch answered, she was like, you know, what is your emergency? I fumbled because I don't know what my emergency really is at this point. Like, what, what am I asking for? Am I asking, do I, do I ask for a coroner? Do I ask for a police? Do I ask for uh, a fire? Like, I don't know what to ask for because it's now, because she's not, you know, she's not fighting for her life. Yeah, it's, you're not calling tough. the medical team. Yeah. Yep. So I, I literally say, send me everything. And the 911 dispatch said, I'm sorry, what? I go, send me everything you've got. I don't care what it is, bring it. And about that time, she realizes that the kids are standing right next to me. I have not like moved them away from me. I have not 
told them to go to another room. And she goes, are the children next to you? And I said, yes. And she was like, get them out of the house. And I was like, you're right. I should get out of the house. And when I opened the door, I grabbed my little one and I handed him over to the oldest. And I said, run to the neighbors. And the kids just took off on a dead sprint. And they were completely panicking. They don't know what to, what's going on. I haven't said anything yet. And so I start attempting to walk out of the house, and that's when everything hits me. Uh, the, the shock, the what's actually just transpired, what I have just saw, and I literally stumble and I pass right out into my front yard. And I've still got the 911 operator online, and she's trying to – I can hear her trying to contact me or t- talk to me, but I'm not – You're not really not coherent. Saying, yeah. Nope. And I'm just sitting in my uh, front yard on my knee trying to comprehend what am I, what is going on? What am I, what is my next move? What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to call? Mm. Like, and it, I'm trying to run through a list, you know, based on my experiences in, in, in my deployments and then what I've been trained in the army and none of things is lining up. Nothing. I, I'm yeah. completely lost as to where do I go from here? And I end up hanging up on the 911 dispatcher completely, and I call my chain of command out of just mental, um, what we normally do in case you know something happens, you immediately inform your chain of command. So it made sense to me at the time. I call my uh, my officer, and he is completely dumbfounded as he can't get me to talk right. I'm I'm screaming into my phone, and I'm I'm trying to tell him what, what's what's happening, and He's even more confused than I am, and finally he – because he can't get me to be coherent enough, he ends up hanging up on me, but then calls me back were, to give me a second to reset, yeah. which gave me, an, gave me about five seconds to, to like, okay, okay. Take a deep breath. All yeah. right. And then he calls me right back, and then he was like, what happened? And so then I, I kind of walk him through it, and he goes, okay. Did you call 911? Yes. He goes, stop talking to me. Handle it. Like he, he went into a complete like – this is what you need to do. Make it happen. Understand me. And I was like, yes, sir. He hung right up. And about that time, my neighbor had come out to mow his lawn and saw me sitting in my front yard. And he just looked at me and just, you okay, Aaron? And I was like, no, no, I am not. And that kind of gave him the idea. And he comes right over to me. And when I tried to tell him what's going on, he, he immediately was like, I got you. I, no more. I got you. And he went over, closed the front door got me some water. And then about that time, the police show up. Now what's crazy is the police officer that shows up is our other neighbor Mm. that gets called out. So now I am facing my neighbor who I'm very good friends with. And he's just looking at me and he already knows. And I'm just sitting there and he, he just walks right up and he stands there and he's, you want to get in my car? Cause it was, you know, Oklahoma heat and I was sweating. I was, completely dehydrated yeah your body's completely in physical shock it really was and i i can tell you that it is not something easily and you don't realize you are until i stood up and when he put me in the squad car that's when i realized i'm like oh i am messed up i couldn't even get into the car i i kind of just laid right there in the door frame and i didn't even have enough strength to get into the seat of the car and he tried to help me into the seat but i i was I was completely dead weight. He was like, I'm just going to turn the air conditioner on high when you have the strength and get in. And so I sat there for, for a little bit before he started saying, you want me to call some people? 
And I was like, yes. But the problem with it was is I had my daughter's phone, not my phone. Right. So I don't know her contacts. So I had to have him go in there and grab my phone and then come back. So he, he brings it back. And that's when I start calling family members one at a time. And that is hands down the most brutal experience I've ever experienced telling JJ's mother that something has happened and she needs to come right now and having to tell her father and then having to tell my mother and my grandmother, and I won't explain it. They're asking a ton of questions and what is, what do you mean? And, and I'm just, just get here, just get here, just get here. That's all I could say. I, I, cause I don't, I don't want to say anything cause I don't know what to say exactly. Right. You just say, get here, just get here. Yep. I'm just picturing this day, uh, how horrific, I mean, it sounds like the worst movie you've ever seen. And you've been to combat, you've been trained in the Army for a couple of decades. You know, like you said, you've been trained for all kinds of scenarios, but not this one. We're going to take a quick break and come back and have you tell us, it's been a couple of years, I imagine there have been ups and downs. How do you maybe summarize for us what you learned initially, what your journey continues to teach you? Because, of course, we all know these journeys don't ever end. We'll be right back. Okay, Aaron, so you've gone through this horrific day. You've got law enforcement. You're notifying family. The children are with the neighbors. I imagine your head is still spinning. Your body's giving out. How have you gotten from that day to today? What have you learned about mental illness? What are you learning through this journey? And then let's talk a little bit about the resilience you've needed to simply get out of bed in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. So, yes, moving forward, it's hard to move forward when you're in the profession that I'm in. Because, you know, AGR, it's a small world. We all work together. Everyone knows everybody. And when something like this happens, they send out a report. It's called a SEER report. And it tells you in detail, hey, this is what happened. These are the people involved. And, you know, you know anyone that's in a leadership position will get this report. This is not anything unusual. So everybody knows my business within 48 hours Ugh. of it happening. And so when I finally decide to come back to work, that is probably one of the hardest decisions because now I have to face everybody at work, and they know the majority of what happened. Some of them are speculating. Some of them are, you know, that's when you learn real quick that who are your true friends yeah. and who are just people that you associate with at work. And throughout the years, the longer you stay in, you learn things that have been said behind your back and things that you're just like, wow, that is, that's dark. And you know, and to think that someone would even think that you're capable of certain things is is hard to really comprehend. And so when I did go back to work, it was a struggle and it was a fight to I kept looking at the dates of how long do I have to survive this? How much longer do I have to do this before I get put in my letter and get out? And that was my like I just counted days as I've got, you know, so many days before I can drop my letter, which is your letter for retirement. I counted every day. And it starts out with just, I, I just got to make it through an hour. I just got to make it through an hour. Okay, now I'm going to make it to the end of the day. And then it turns into a week. I can just make it to the end of the week. I'll be okay. I can, if I can just make it to the end of the month. And then oh, when, I, when I make it to the end of the year, you know, and so it starts out like that. It's a slow, just, okay, I just got to survive. I just got to survive. 
you come into those the fight or flight mode and you you start looking at just I need basics. I don't need anything else. I, I cut everything off. I don't need I don't need television. I don't need I just need enough food to survive. So I cut my rations almost in half just to because I go into like a survival mode of okay I don't need that. What I do need is this. And like certain people that would talk to me, my my conversations were short and to the point. Uh, I would leave in the middle of conversations. Sometimes I'd get to work and sit down, then turn right back around and leave. I wouldn't tell anybody. I wouldn't like tell my chain of command. I just left. I just couldn't. It was hard to like go back to the same building where you met your wife and you worked together, and then all of a sudden now you have to go back to it and actually function. And the military has a very short span of we'll let you grieve, but you need to get your head back in the game and, and, and push forward. And so that grieving process is not very long because we've all been in where we have lost sisters and brothers in combat and people are just forced to take that minute, but now move forward. And so once they came back, our leadership was like, okay, start moving forward. It sounds great in, in on paper and then right. email it's and just, email text. Yeah. It's just not linear have, grief. Yeah. It yeah. just doesn't work that but way. And then you try to move forward. Yep. And when you try to actually apply it, that's when you find out your plan has gone to crap in a handbasket. <laughs> and, yeah. and so that is, that's exactly what happened. I thought I was ready. I, I made an attempt. And for the first two years afterwards, it was a hit and miss. You didn't know what version of Master Sergeant you were going to get. I could have been, I'd go rogue. Sometimes I would smart off. I would say things that I had never said in my entire career. I would, you know, I had no problem telling people where they stood in my life. You know, if I knew that you said something before, I was very blunt and I would, call you out on it. And uh, that was not who I, uh, I was. So it, there was a whole new version of me and it was very almost analytic, like hostile, like, nope. And so I'm I, curious, I really had a hard time. did something happen after that first couple of years to transition or did you just kind of feel yourself maybe transitioning gradually or was it kind of a moment? You said that first couple of years was so hard. So the kids, we were sitting down talking one night and the kids were like, Hey, what are you going to do? Are you getting out or not? And I was, and I was like, no, I'm getting out. And they were like, well, why don't you go back to college and finish your degree? Because that was one of the things that JJ and I listed as we were going to do. Because we live right next to OU. We are like, we could throw a stone and hit OU. So we were big OU fans. And I was like, yeah, I remember talking about that. And so the kids just kept arguing, like, just do it. And so I, I applied to OU and I got in. And that's the turning point. That's where I, I really? focus changed it changed my focus mm. of woe is me to wait a minute. You still got some fight left in you and the fight can be not internal, but it can be external and you can fight to show your children. You can pass us. You can continue to move forward and you can be successful. When they saw that, that's when I it clicked that I need to do this not only for myself, but my kids need to see me do it so they can go, look, my dad's been through some pretty horrific stuff and yet he is still being successful. My mindset completely changed. Were you offered any counseling or therapy to get through this? I mean, it's a horrific mm-hmm. yeah. trauma that you've yes. faced. Uh, yes. So we have a fantastic um, Michelle Boris, who is the uh, mental health coordinator for the state of Oklahoma. And she's assigned to the Oklahoma Guard. She oversees all that. And she was immediately sent to my house within the first uh, couple of days after um, the funeral. And I had requested it because I was, I was having a hard time just waking, like just functioning. She came to my house. She actually physically shows up to the house. And then twice a week, she would come 
we would just talk. So after about six weeks, she handed me over to another therapist that was more um, skilled for that, a civilian that was not on the, the natural TRICARE line. And I paid out of pocket, but she was worth every penny because what yeah. she would do is she introduced physical fitness into therapy. So we did boxing and we did rock climbing. You know, when you address and just start pounding your aggressions into a punching bag, you know, three times a week, you can relieve a lot of stress really quickly. So yeah. that's where I, I got love, my therapy. You work. know, I look at that, you've, you're talking the physical, but also the um, mental, the engagement. So getting into school, getting your mind focused, challenged, feeling like maybe there's something you can learn and then help someone else with. And then also yep. that physical fitness. I think that is a huge piece of mental health. The talking through the therapy is, is beautiful and that can really help get perspective, but sometimes you just need to do. You need to get your body moving yeah. as well, get your mind moving and get it engaged and not not get stuck in that. Erin, this has been amazing. I've got one last question for you before we wrap up because, mm-hmm. I mean, I know we could talk mm-hmm. for hours about everything, but can you define resilience for us? What does resilience mean to you? Resilience to me is being able to to understand what has happened to you and to be able to process it and look at it not necessarily as a as a negative but as a learning experience that you have you have faced that you can now take and move forward and help others to understand and how to process all those emotions and all those things that come with it i have found it extremely beneficial to look back and go this is where i messed up i don't want someone to do the same thing i did and so I do a lot of reaching out, and I try to talk to as many people as I can, and I go back to classes, and I talk about how to move past it. You, you're going to carry it with you, but you're gonna, you need to carry it in a different way. You've got to look at it not necessarily in a positive way, but look at it in a way that it's going to make you a better person in the long run. If you can take it and see what, what it brings to the table is not necessarily all negative. It brings a completely different element that you have never used in your life before and that element is is actually puts you in a different category than others have ever that will ever understand or or experience yeah that is a powerful definition of resilience too to understand what's happened to you and then almost learn how to see it differently make it a a positive um, learning experience where maybe you can help someone else and i really appreciate that you're reaching out to others because you have felt that darkness and that shock and just everything else that all of us fear losing someone in general. And yet we really, really fear losing someone to suicide. It is horrific. It is devastating. It is so complex. And we just appreciate you being willing to take your own journey and share it and be vocal with it. And we all know that when we when we do that, of course, our hope is that we can just help someone else. So thank you, Aaron. I know this is a difficult journey, and I'm grateful that I know you. I'm inspired by your story. And I love what you said that, you know, we're going to be honest about the f- stuff we did wrong or the way we mishandled our grief or mishandled our emotions. And then we're oh, going to yeah. lo- learn how to move forward better rather than beating ourselves up over it and getting stuck in what yes. we messed up. So thank you for all Absolutely. of that. It's been a powerful conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. It's been Hard to listen to, but also inspiring to know that you can go through something like that and find your way out of it. So thank you for coming on today. If you've liked what you've heard on our podcast, you can subscribe for free and give us a rating and review. 
If you know someone who has a real story, we all have them. We'd love to hear from you and give you an opportunity to share your story with us. Send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And to everyone that's listening, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles people are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was senseless. And I will never understand it. I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson. And unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.